0: another reason why it's a story worth telling and teaching is that it's important to point to these things where we are capable as a species on some level of of solving problems that are you know deeply entrenched in everyday life and the routines and technology and infrastructure of everyday life i mean just think of all the like gas stations around the world that were selling leaded gasoline i think i think it took us too long but it's also good to remind ourselves that sometimes we create unintended consequences and negative externalities, and then correct them.
1: Welcome to the War on Cars. I'm Aaron Napersak. This year, 2023, is the 100th anniversary of the invention of leaded gasoline. When you rank all of the many different ways that the automobile has harmed human health and the environment over the course of the last 100 years, the effects of leaded gasoline have to be pretty close to the top of the list. For centuries now, going back at least as far as the Roman Empire, humanity has known that lead is a dangerous neurotoxin. Ingesting or inhaling even tiny amounts of lead is extremely damaging to the human brain and body, and especially the developing brains and bodies of young children. Scientists were well aware of these dangers in the 1920s, But adding tetraethyl lead to gasoline made internal combustion engines work better. And leaded gasoline made it possible to turn the automobile into a mass market product. Our guest on the podcast today is Stephen Johnson. Stephen is the best-selling author of 13 books at the intersection of science, technology, and personal experience. His most recent is called Extra Life, A Short History of Living Longer. He also hosts the American Innovations podcast. Stephen recently wrote an article for the New York Times magazine called The Man Who Broke the World. In it, he tells the story of Thomas Midgley Jr., one of the great American inventors of the early 20th century. Not only did Midgley make the discoveries that led to the development of leaded gasoline, he also discovered the chemical compound that led to the invention of freon, the substance that made refrigeration and aerosol sprays possible. But as with leaded gas, the chlorofluorocarbons that make up freon had an almost unbelievably destructive impact on the global environment. By the 1980s, it was clear that Midgley's second big invention, chlorofluorocarbons, were burning holes in the ozone layer of the Earth's atmosphere and literally threatening life on the planet. Thomas Midgley Jr. had almost godlike powers of invention. He made possible mass motoring, refrigeration, and modern American life. But his inventions came with unimaginably destructive, unintended consequences. So here to tell us a bit more about Thomas Midgley Jr. and to mark the 100th anniversary of the invention of leaded gas is author Stephen Johnson. Stephen Johnson? Welcome to the War on Cars.
0: Thank you, Aaron. It's great to be here.
1: Thanks for coming. So, you know, I've been looking for an excuse to get you on the podcast for ages now. um, And you finally obliged us by writing this fantastic article for The New York Times Magazine a few months ago titled The Man Who Broke
0: the World. I've been waiting for an invitation to be on this podcast. So I'm glad you finally, like, (laughs) really?
1: (laughs) Okay. well, I'm glad we finally made it happen. So in this article, Stephen, you tell the story of Thomas Midgley Jr an early 20th century inventor who was responsible for creating two incredibly valuable world-changing innovations that also both turned out to be wildly destructive, leaded gasoline and Freon. Yep, one guy. One one guy (laughs) in in basically the span of a decade. This essay you wrote, it's fundamentally about the unintended consequences of new technology. And if you think about it in many ways, that's also what our podcast is about the automobile and all of its unintended consequences. So, for example, if you had told Americans a century ago that this nifty new technology for personal mobility, the car, would kill over 50,000 Americans per year by the middle of the 20th century, that it would lead us to decimate our own cities, towns, and villages, and cover our best farmland in asphalt and sprawl, that you know it would contribute substantially to the melting of polar ice caps and the disruption of the global climate system. like. You know, that would be hard to believe. Yeah, yeah.
0: be like, sign me up. That sounds fantastic.
1: Right. I think a lot of people would be like, yeah, we're stick with trains and horses. We're good. And yet, even with that pretty impressive list of negative externalities, you can plausibly make the argument that the most destructive thing that mass motoring ever did to humanity and the environment was the result of leaded gasoline. What was the purpose of leaded gasoline? Why was it needed? Why was it considered such a great innovation for its time?
0: Yeah, it it was originally developed um, to combat one almost kind of existential problem for the automobile platform um, and also to enhance some other features. Um, And the problem was engine knock.
2: It was discovered that a rare compound of lead mixed in proper proportions with gasoline made an ideal anti-knock fuel. Horsepower increased, speed picked up and the nut was gone. No man can look at the amazing record of accomplishment here in this research division without confidence that these men are going ahead with an eye to the future, looking for new facts and principles which will make things better and make life easier for all of us.
0: Early automobiles were prone to this kind of violent, extremely inefficient in terms of power generation flaw, which was engine knock, and the car would kind of seize and jerk. And it was very hard to, you know, pass somebody on a, on a two-lane road. You couldn't reliably assume that your car would have the, you know, the energy at its disposal that you hoped for. And so driving was kind of unpleasant and also more dangerous because of this. And so you just didn't have the same kind of power efficiencies that we ex- expect in a modern automobile. And it was an interesting period because they, they really weren't sure what was causing knock and they knew that it was keeping people from buying automobiles. And it, and, and it seemed like maybe it was going to be just a kind of a ceiling on this transportation technology that they would never be able to solve it and people wouldn't buy cars. Um, and so it was a major, along with the electric starter, which was an innovation that had come from Charles Kettering, who's a big figure in this piece as well. Um, it was one of the two or three main limiting factors. You know, you needed availability of gas stations. You needed to solve engine knock. You needed to get an electric starter and then you could then maybe this automobile thing would take off. Um, And so this is kind of the late teens, um, a little more than 100 years ago. And uh, basically, it turned out through a series of somewhat random experiments um, that if you added a very small amount of lead to gasoline, you miraculously ended engine knock. And in fact, increased the um, you know, the power efficiency of these engines um, so that it was more pleasant to drive, it was safer to drive, and it just improved the experience altogether.
1: And to put this in context, you write that this invention, it may have even been as important as the the Ford Model T assembly line. Like this really made mass motoring possible.
0: Yeah, in a sense, the, the Model T assembly line m- made the cars uh, affordable, um, but they still weren't really that great experience as a, as a mode of transportation because of engine knock, and, and because of electric starter. Those were the two big things that really changed it into something that ordinary consumers might want to use, um, particularly women, the electric starter was a big thing for uh, female adoption of the cars, which is a huge part of the story of the 1920s. And so, you know, it was a real kind of threshold for the kind of American craze for the automobile was, was solving this problem and solving it through the introduction of lead. And that, again, as you said in, the, in in describing the beginning of this piece, like that seemed at the time to be a wonderful case of kind of American ingenuity and <laughs> right. innovation that, you know, in this R&D lab in, you know, Dayton, Ohio, there's some brilliant chemist kind kind of comes up with this solution and it solves an urgent need and unlocks all this amazing entrepreneurial and economic activity and the whole country gets changed because of this technology. It just happens, unfortunately, that lead is an incredible neurotoxin (laughs) (laughs) and uh, the kind of low levels of it seeping into particularly urban crowded areas where there are lots of automobiles um, is probably, you know, at the very top of the list of human caused health problems of the 20th century.
1: Let's just pause on that real quick. So what did lead do to human beings and the environment?
0: Everybody knew. In, in the 1920s, as leaded gasoline was being introduced, that lead was a toxin. Um, it was, you know, this is an ancient kind of story. People had been poisoned by lead forever. Um, what was disputed at the time was whether lead in very small quantities, i.e. the amount of lead that would be emitted from, um, you know, the exhaust of a, of a leaded gas-powered car would be enough to affect human beings. And it turns out that uh, with enough cars and enough crowded areas, with enough density of cars and with enough children around, that seemingly small quantities of lead um, can just be incredibly disastrous. I mean, the the impact on IQ scores, for instance. A new study shows that (laughs) lead from gasoline lowered the IQ about half the U.S. population. In fact, for people born in the 60s and 70s, the IQ loss was estimated to be up to six points for Mm -hmm. some more than seven glad i don't have a car anymore what more can you tell us <laughs> yeah. about this?
2: all right so first of all let me say that these are just estimates okay nothing concrete here and, let and
0: famously me... there's some wonderful set of experiments where this scientist claire patterson was trying to in the 50s was trying to do all these experiments calculating the age of the earth and and part of that involved a very sensitive lead analysis or analysis involved the detection of lead in in rocks and other objects and when he started building his lab, he found that uh, it was very difficult to do these experiments accurately because there seemed to be lead everywhere in his lab. (laughs) And he was like, what is going on? This is very strange. And so finally, he built this kind of clean room that eliminated all the lead. And he was able to actually accurately date the age of the Earth based on these experiments. So he made a major breakthrough in, in science in that way. But from this kind of accidental discovery, he realized that there was just way more kind of small quantities of lead distributed everywhere in modern society. And he went off in this other separate investigation to show how much lead had accumulated, starting really with industrialization, but then just taking off completely with the with the rise of the automobile in in the you know thirties and forties in the United States. And Subsequently, over time, a number of people fought uh, to prove that it was causing extremely damaging problems, particularly in inner city areas, particularly among marginalized communities, because there was you know, more density of automobiles in, in cities. And a number of people have attributed the, um, the decline of crime in the 90s from uh, us outlawing bled cars in the 70s. You know, there have been a number of attempts to explain why crime dropped so precipitously uh, in the in the mid 90s, uh, you know, across the country and particularly in big cities like New York. And it just if you if you you can just think about this logically. And but there have been a number of studies that looked at this more rigorously. The kids who were potentially criminals <laughs> in late adolescence or early 20s, um, in the middle of the 90s, were the kids who were the first generation that grew up without leaded gasoline-based cars, right. you know, as prominent on the roads. Um, and so we think that there's at least some kind of causal relationship between the decline of violent crime and finally eliminating this problem, or beginning to eliminate this problem.
2: It's been a rainy fall here in New York. Like, we had three times as much rain as we usually do in September alone. But thanks to my Urbanaut trench from Cleverhood, I was able to stay out and about in all that weather, which seriously helped preserve my mental health. Now, with the temperatures dropping, I've got my eye on Cleverhood's new Snow Cape. This ultra-cozy down garment is waterproof and breathable, and it packs away neatly into its own interior pocket. The snow cape also is incredibly versatile and stylish, with two different cool color combinations and ways to adjust the fit for different looks. It's very dashing, and I might have to move into one for the winter. Head on over to cleverhood.com to check it out. Listeners to The War on Cars can get 15% off the snow cape and everything at Cleverhood by using coupon code SNOWCAPE at checkout. That's cleverhood.com, coupon code SNOWCAPE.
1: So your article goes well beyond just, you know, cars and lead. How did you how did you get to Thomas Midgley? What got you interested in this story to begin with?
0: So in a lot of my um, books, you know, I've written about a lot of different topics. um, But generally, uh, you know, the overarching theme is kind of innovation and how innovation happens. Um, And increasingly over the last. Six or seven years, I've written more and more about the unintended consequences of innovation, Um, sometimes in a positive way. Right. Sometimes people invent things that it turns out that they unlock doors, of possibility that make it easier for people to do other things that have positive effects on society. But I've also grown, you know, increasingly interested as I grow older and more cynical um, with, (laughs) you know, innovations that end up. You know, creating unintended harms um, and. Also with the question of thinking about our new inventions on longer timescales, right? So not just thinking about like what problem is this solving right now and maybe what would be the negative side effects right now and and trying to stretch instead our kind of mental imagination, our time scales so that we think, well, okay, what happens if this gets adopted by, you know, a mass market? What might be the downstream consequences 50 years from now or 100 years from now? Um, and so just... As in, you know, in in this podcast, right, and, and so much of your work, the the idea of like, okay, we're inventing these automobiles, but how might that affect, say, the design of cities 50 years from now if this becomes a mainstream technology, right? Almost no one was having that conversation in 1920, right? It was just like, oh, I could get from X to Y faster. right? Um, you know, that would be nice. That's great. And so, you know, one of the things as we... As the pace of technology advances, it, I think it's important for us to develop those kind of cognitive muscles to imagine the downstream consequences of what we invent and what we put in the world because the things we're inventing are increasingly powerful. So I I was kind of interested in exploring that theme, and I like many things I've written about, I'd kind of stumbled across Midgley's story. A couple of times in a couple of different contexts, it was kind of like a cocktail party story that I would tell. Like uh-huh. I would be like, you know, it's can a you crazy story. This guy? I mean, because you think about it, you could say like the you know the the argument about Midgley is that on some level, like no single person had a, a you know more disastrous effect on the planet than Midgley did in the twentieth century because you know I don't, I don't know if we've alluded to this yet, but Freon and the CFCs that were in Freon, and we can get into this more detail eventually caused the, triggered the hole in the ozone layer.
2: Time-lapse satellite pictures have confirmed the annual appearance of the massive hole, shown in red and purple at the center. One theory for the appearance of the hole in the ozone layer is that it's a natural phenomenon caused by the Antarctic's climate and the solar cycle. Wing pods carried by the research aircraft were pre-programmed to collect meteorological data to test this idea. But the most popular theory is that man-made chemicals, chlorofluorocarbons, known as CFCs, are causing the problem.
1: So Stephen, not long after Midgley invented leaded gasoline, he and his boss Charles Kettering turned their attention to the problem of refrigeration. And refrigerators existed in the early 20th century, but they didn't work very well, and they're actually pretty dangerous. So what was the problem with refrigeration at that time, and what was Midgley trying to solve?
0: Yeah, and this 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 obsession actually goes back to um, the book and the TV series I did, How We Got to Now, which had a whole episode and chapter on making things cold. Like, human beings had been innovating to make things hot. for, <laughs> right. for, for Like, since the just, See, you know, fire, right? You know, but it turns out that, like, really nobody did anything in terms of c- coming up with novel ways to make things cold until really the 19th century. And, and, you know, in the middle of the 19th century, one of the largest businesses in the United States was the ice trade where people would like chop up frozen lakes in, you know, the Northeast or in Canada and ship those blocks of ice all around, literally all around the world. And amazingly, if you have a big enough block of ice, it won't melt on its way to Brazil or something like that. So in the second half of the 19th century, people started thinking, well, wait, we, we can do mechanical, um, cold in a sense. And you saw first that happening on kind of an industrial scale. And then, in Brooklyn, actually, Carrier invents the first air conditioning unit, initially also for in- industrial use at the beginning of the 20th century. And then starting around the teens and the 20s, people start thinking about home refrigerators and then home air conditioning units. Um, and that, you know, talk about unintended consequences, too. You know, the, the air conditioner just re drew the map of the United States. I mean, as soon as you had home air conditioning, like uh, literally millions of the single biggest migration of human beings in the history of the United States happens <laughs> as everybody moves to Arizona and everybody moves right. to South Florida and everybody moves to Texas. And and that redraws the political map of the United States. So the, you know, right, the,
1: so you can even draw a line from air conditioners to like Ronald Reagan. Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there's a clear if the the Sunbelt Coalition that got Reagan elected Was absolutely dependent on the invention of air conditioning. Now, Reagan might have been elected through some other means, but uh, he would have had to have built a different constituency if air conditioning hadn't been around. So, you know, it's it's hard to predict these things. Um, So, but back to your question. So, refrigerators in the 20s are starting to become this thing, but they were the, they used as a refrigerant things like ammonia and methyl chloride, which were either kind of deadly gases that if they leaked could just. Killed people on mass, or they were very explosive. There were a number of ammonia refrigerant uh, explosions that killed people, and so there was this, you know, search for a safe refrigerant. And and once again, Kettering went to Midgley, who had, you know, three or four years before this solved the engine knock problem with leaded gasoline, and and said, hey, you know, Midge, as he called him, uh, I, I've got a new problem for you to solve. Um, we need a safe refrigerant, and Midgley very quickly came up with um, much more quickly actually than he had with leaded gasoline came up with the solution of CFCs uh, which was branded as freon so chlorofluorocarbons thank you for saying that cuz i did, i can never quite remember yeah. how to say it um, and that was initially a you know a, a big hit um and a kind of uncompromised hit so you know one of the things that's worth pointing out about lead in addition to the fact that they they knew lead in large quantities was uh, a, a toxin um they had enormous problems initially manufacturing leaded gasoline so mm-hmm. they they'd opened a um where they started manufacturing ethyl which is what they called leaded gasoline the brand they gave it in the dupont Deepwater plant which is right at that point where on the Jersey side, where uh, as you're getting off the turnpike and you're going south towards DC, you go over a bridge there. Mm-hmm. To the left of that is where Deepwater was, which is now one of the most toxic sites in America. Right,
1: it's a, you can actually smell it as you drive by yeah. on the New Jersey it's, turnpike. It, it's,
0: a, it's a disastrous place. Anyway, they started manufacturing ethyl there, and almost immediately, the employees at the plant started going insane. They called that plant the House of Butterflies because people would hallucinate being swarmed with, like, insects and stuff like that. A number of them committed suicide. I mean, it was just, like, mass death instantly at the plant. And so they were like, you know, there was a, <laughs> There might be a problem you know, they just, with the lead. Yeah. Midgley himself got lead poisoning for messing around with it. Um, and he was like, well, I guess I'm going to go off to play some golf in Florida and get over this little bout of lead poisoning I have right. from the job. So they, there was, you know, there was plenty of evidence that they just ignored. Whereas the CFCs you know, we're setting in motion a chain of uh, of kind of chemical reactions that would not really, you know, that that were not visible to the naked eye in any way. And that were slowly un- kind of unfurling in the upper atmosphere. And what makes the CFC stories so much challenging, I think, for us and thinking about the lessons of this is that the, the problem, the unintended consequence, the negative unintended consequence, of CFCs was fundamentally, you know, not understandable to science for another 30 years.
1: Well, and it's such an extraordinary unintended consequence. So we should just explain that. What did chlorofluorocarbons do to Earth's atmosphere?
0: Yeah, it has no it has no natural kind of sink in the Earth. And so they slowly accumulate. And, and part of what happened is, um, in addition to Freon, they began to realize that CFCs could be used as a aerosol propellant in, in in spray cans. And so between freon and, and in refrigeration and then um, aerosols, we just started emitting all these CFCs and they basically have nowhere to go. Uh, and they're not naturally kind of dissolved by anything else. And so they end up accumulating in the upper atmosphere, in the stratosphere. And eventually through a set of chemical reactions that I couldn't possibly explain to you. They end up depleting the ozone, which is a major force protecting us from ultraviolet rays from the sun.
1: So, fifty years of chlorofluorocarbons, or however many decades it was, end up putting actual holes in the ozone layer of the Earth's atmosphere yeah. above above the poles, essentially yeah. above the north yeah. and south pole yeah. of the planet. I mean, it's just a, it's like yeah. So, how could anyone have imagined? That outcome.
0: Of yeah, I got technology. my refrigerator. First off, like nobody really knew anything about the stratosphere at that point in 1928, so it, it wasn't like you'd be like, "Well, um, I've got my refrigerator here. I hope it isn't damaging the ozone layer." <laughs> that no even knew they what the ozone what layer, layer was. was, right? You know, <laughs> yeah. so so it was an it was a strange logical leap to make in the first place, but it was an impossible leap to make in 1928 or 1929. Um, and I think, you know, we can get into this more, but like that is one of those things that I keeps me up at a, a night is like, what are we doing now <laughs> that will not be understandable to science until 2060 or something like that?
1: Um, okay, well, let, let, let's get it. So, so Thomas Midgley, this incredible inventor, poisons us with lead and burns two holes in the earth's yeah, atmosphere yeah. with two inventions that he created in the span of 10 years. It's it's just, and I, I had never heard of this guy. So yeah. it was like a kind of a phenomenally shocking story. Yeah. Yeah. So why now? Why, why do you want to write about this now? Where, what are you mm-hmm. thinking about bigger picture?
0: Yeah. I mean, just rewind for a second to what you just said, that this story was new to you. Like these, so much of what I write about are like, these are things that should be taught in, you know, <laughs> right. high school history classes, oh. right? It would be such a good class, too, by the way. I, well, it's a great multidisciplinary class, right? It, yeah. I mean, because it's about chemistry and industrial engineering and innovation theory and the history of cities and history of technology. I mean, there's so yeah, many things there. in it that – and health, obviously, a huge part of it. Um, and it's got great detective stories in it, too, of people solving these mysteries of why people were getting sick. Public health generally is something that is completely ignored. Um, when it's maybe one of the most important things that, that keeps modern society working, particularly in big cities, right? Yeah. Um, so I'm always trying to find things that I feel like are enormously important to understanding the world that we live in that are just chronically underrepresented in in our in both what we teach in classrooms and, and in the general conversation. Um, I mean, this is one of these funny things with Bitly where like, I went to the Times Magazine and it was like, hey, I've got a story. About a chemist who's been dead for eighty years. <laughs> They're like, hmm. <laughs> <Like, laughs> but it, you know, it turned out to, apparently it was, apparently it was one of the top uh, most read stories of the month um, right. in the like whole New York Times. Um, and I think, because I, I think, to, to finally get back to your question, like, I think we're living in times where people are aware that there are complicated and potentially powerful new developments happening in science and technology, and that. W- we should be getting better about thinking about the downstream effects of what we what we invent and what we put out in the world. Right. So Stephen,
1: if there's a bright side to this whole story, it's that leaded gasoline was eventually phased out in the United States and is now basically banned all around the world. And in 1987, the international community came together under the auspices of the United Nations to ratify the Montreal Protocol, uh, which phased out the use of chlorofluorocarbons and all these other substances that were found to be destroying the ozone layer. So what do you think we can learn from these successful efforts to solve the enormous problems that Midgley's inventions created?
0: You know, that's another reason why I think it was an important story to to write. Although I didn't get into the details of the Montreal Protocol. It's just a couple of paragraphs in the piece. But it may be the high mark of kind of global collaboration and in solving a pressing human health problem um, up there with smallpox eradication. From ABC, this is World News Tonight with Peter Jennings.
2: And now the ozone layer. The Environmental Protection Agency formalized a plan today that this country and 23 others agreed to. In Montreal in September, A plan to freeze the production and use of the chemicals believed to be damaging the ozone layer, which protects us from the sun's dangerous rays in washington here's abc's patina gregory in the next 10 years coolants and air conditioners and refrigerators will have to change so will foam insulation chemicals used to produce computer chips and even styrofoam fast food containers that's because they contain or are manufactured with chlorofluorocarbons cfc's for short as these chemicals rise into the air they destroy the ozone layer which protects us from the sun's harmful ultraviolet rays the result a dramatic increase in skin cancer, cataracts and other diseases. Satellite. I guess
0: I would say that, you know, you could look at it cynically and I do look at it cynically a lot and say, like, there was there was less of a political constituency and less of a talk radio right wing opinion machine that was developed enough to kind of make the pro CFC argument or something like that. But on the other hand, by that point, there were actual alternatives on the table that were not disastrous to kind of swap in. And so it was a little bit easier to say, like, hey, we should shift to unleaded gas and drop the CFCs in our, you know, hairspray versus, hey, we should stop emitting carbon. Right. You know, that that's a, it's a harder move to make society wise. Um, it's harder,
1: though. At the same time, we we actually do have all the technology handy now. And it's now. really working. We do
0: now. No, no, I agree. And I mean, I think that's that's maybe the most significant development globally in the world over the last. Five or ten years is that there's there's no longer like, well, we hope we can develop some kind of renewable energy source that will allow us to continue living this lifestyle we have, and it's like, actually now, like we can do it. It's just do we have the will to do it, and do we have the right um, but I think you know, ten or fifteen years ago, maybe that was more of an open question. So I think that's one of the reasons why there was less resistance to it, but I also just think that. Another reason why it's a story worth telling and teaching is that it's important to point to these things where we are capable, as a species on some level, of, of solving problems that are, you know, deeply entrenched in everyday life and the routines and technology and infrastructure of everyday life. I mean, just think of all the like gas stations around the world that were selling leaded gasoline. I think I think it took us too long, but it's also good to remind ourselves that sometimes we create unintended consequences and negative externalities and then correct them down Mm -hmm. the line. Um, It is possible to do that.
1: You know, one of the things you note in your piece is that it's increasingly possible for individuals or small groups to create scientific breakthroughs, whether they be in chemistry or biotech or material science that can set off some really enormous potential consequences that reverberate on a global scale. Artificial intelligence, you know, CRISPR, the you know the gene editing technology, geoengineering somebody could just shoot off a bunch of sulfur into the atmosphere to stop you know climate change. So what you know what do you what concerns you the most in in, in terms of these like potential technological interventions and their consequences?
0: Uh, I have a uh, running kind of email and text thread where we share our doomsday scenarios, among other things. Um, and you know there's sometimes this debate about that we've had about you know what is it? what is it that's ultimately threatening us? You know, is it is it capitalism that's threatening us? Or, you know, is it potentially artificial intelligence that's threatening us? And I keep coming back to this sense that like the thing that is really threatening us on some level is science. Hmm. And I say that as someone who is a great believer in the power of science, whatever. But one of the things that science does over time is that it um, slowly makes it easier for smaller and smaller groups of people to have bigger and bigger effects on the world. Um, And so. You know, on some level, you can say that Midgley is the emblem of that, as we've already kind of said. But but Midgley actually needed a lot of help, right? He he could invent that thing in a lab, but he needed an entire infrastructure to manufacture, um, you know, refrigerators and aerosol cans and and gas-powered, let gas-powered cars and all that stuff. So he really he was a one-man, you know, uh, natural disaster. But he had a lot of he needed an entire like industrial system. But if you think about technologies that unlike leaded gasoline or unlike CFCs that replicate, right, that can make copies of themselves, whether that's like nanobots or, you know, gene-based technologies or, you know, bioengineered viruses. Um, Then you get into a world where, like, you can imagine a future Midgley who literally does it all on his own in a lab and unleashes something that just makes copies of itself, that does planetary-scale damage. And that is, you know, that seems like a path we were just inexorably on, that we were going to get ever more powerful technologies and scientific breakthroughs that are deployable by ever smaller groups. So, for instance, one of the things, am I, am I, am I bumming you out? No, this is basically
1: how most uh, War on Cars editorial meetings go as well.
0: <laughs> it, just like,
1: it just becomes like a litany of doomsday scenarios. So, you know, I'm very comfortable with this. Go on. So,
0: so the book I'm writing right now, um, it's largely about the battle between the anarchists and the New York Police Department in the teens and the and the twenties, and in many ways it's about the invention of dynamite because you know the whole anarchist movement in the, in Europe and in the United States was sometimes wrongly characterized by anarchists blowing things up, and they're the, you know they were literally deeply embedded in the invention of dynamite. Like it's almost impossible. It's a little like Reagan and air conditioning. Like had dynamite not been invented by Nobel in the mid 1860s, almost certainly the course of anarchism as a political movement would have developed in a different way. They were so, wow. you know, they were called the dynamite club and all that kind of stuff. And on some level, what, what dynamite was, was, you know, very much what we were just talking about. It was for the first time an individual or a small group of people could do devastating explosive damage um, with something concealed, you know, in their jacket. And that was just something you couldn't, you know, if you wanted to, if you wanted to blow up parliament, you needed like a lot of (laughs) gunpowder to do that. But once you had dynamite, you could just have a stick of it and throw it in a cafe and kill 30 people. Um, And so it enabled a new kind of, it really enabled the invention of terrorism. So these are all kind of long-term trends that I see developing. And I don't really know what the, Right answer is, except that when we see potential technologies that have this capability for replication, that strikes me as the place where we want to be extremely heavy handed in the way that we regulate them and the, way, and, and the social norms mm-hmm. we build around the, the deployment of those technologies. And those, those are the ones that really actually worry me you know, more than AI, for instance.
1: You write that there's you know, something unnervingly godlike in the Hmm. sheer scale of the impact that Thomas Midgley had on humanity and our environment. And it occurred to me that there's also something unnervingly religious in like the kind of faith and devotion that we have for technology and innovation and this belief that we have that it's going to constantly improve our lives. And one of the things that's striking about the subject that we cover on this podcast is the way in which, you know, many of the best solutions for personal mobility in cities especially are based on very old technologies mm-hmm. like these are like innovations from the 19th century you know the bicycle the bus yeah <laughs> the train the streetcar like right. we had it we had it all right. you know by like 1890 it was pretty much all there <laughs> <laughs> and and like the new stuff that we invented in the 20th century has has in many ways mostly disrupted urban life, like these older mobility technologies were sort of more based around our bodies, you know, around sort of like an ancient wisdom that like people can get around on two feet if you just give them like urban density and, you know, ways to move efficiently. I don't know. Is there like any way you can imagine a scenario where we begin to prioritize this kind of like older, deeper wisdom over the kind of newer, flashier innovation and technology?
0: Well. I think some of that is happening. I mean, I think I I do think that there has been a significant change and we'll see how long it lasts. But um, if you just look at the way people are writing about new technological innovations, particularly AI, you know, over the last three or four years compared to the way that they wrote about early social media, you know, there was very little discussion in, in 2005 or 2006 about, you know, the discussion about social media was like, is it dumb <laughs> you know it was
1: is it dumb or it was it was just like this is going to democratize and improve. it was just yeah. very utopian it was utopian
0: too. or, or and, the, and the criticism was just like it's people sharing pictures of their sandwiches and then the and then the you know the proponents of it were like no it's arab spring look at this stuff that's happening and yeah. you know by the way that stuff did happen right i mean black lives matter occupy wall street uh, me too or all these things were you know, unimaginable without social media. So I'm actually slightly less, I don't know, doctrinaire on the social media question. But the point was we weren't having the conversation. Like yeah. there was not a lot of deep thinking about like, what would this do to, what would be the potential risk to democracy in a, uh, in a world where everybody was on social media? Right. Um, and that is the conversation, whether you like it or not, like that is the conversation we're having about AI right now. And I think the conversation, if you think about it in terms of urban spaces, like there has been... You know, and you've been a part of that in in New York for sure, and other places with the work you've done. Like, you know there there is much more of a there is much more of a sense of like, you know, high density, you know, pedestrian environments are a really great way to live, and we should figure out you know to, uh, ways to undo the damage right. we've done to our How to cities. make more of that? I mean, I mean, I like, you know. <sighs> It, just look at what's happened in Europe. Like, I mean, it's in it, the transformation of like the Barcelona's and the Paris's and, you know, or everybody learning from what Amsterdam and Copenhagen had done before. Um, you know, we really have to to your point, like gone backwards technologically in those spaces. So I think we're capable of doing it. It's um it's not a very American thing to do, right? right?
1: Okay, so Stephen, I know you have to run, but before we finish. How did Thomas Midgley come to his end? Tell us the story of his death.
0: Yeah, there's a there's a fascinating, kind of tragic and tragically fitting, perhaps, coda to his life, which is that um in the early 1940s he developed polio and was paralyzed from the waist down from this. Unrelated, I think, to any of his adventures with lead. I think it was just a separate case of polio. And initially he responded to it with the kind of classic Midgley-esque Brio. He invented a contraption to help him get in and out of his bed without anybody else's assistance. And, you know, it's kind of a series of levers and pulleys and things like that. So he could get in and out and into his wheelchair and things like that. And everybody was like, look at Plucky, Tom Midgley, like, you know, even faced with this adversity, he, he he's innovating as always. And then about four years after that, he was found dead, uh, strangled to death by the contraption that he had invented. Wow. And so it's always been kind of seen as this allegory of the man who invented all these things that came back to destroy so much of the planet and people's health, killed in the end by the machine that he invented. The twist on it is that apparently the the public story was that he'd been accidentally murdered by his machine, um, but almost certainly it was a suicide. Uh, okay. um, so he and it's, it still has some kind of metaphoric value, I suppose, in the sense that the the machine he invented was the means of his own demise. And the
1: suicide could have been somewhat lead induced. I yeah, mean, that it's possible. Is, yeah,
0: yeah it's possible. Um, but it's a kind of a morbid, um, perhaps fittingly morbid end to uh, the life, the short happy life, otherwise happy life of Thomas Midgley. <laughs>
1: Well, Stephen Johnson, thank you so much for joining us here at The War on Cars.
0: Really Ah, appreciate it. Thank you. I'm just still angry that it took you so long, but I'm glad (laughs) you've been here and I hope to come back soon. (laughs)
1: Come on back anytime. That's it for this episode of The War on Cars. Thanks again to Stephen Johnson for joining us. You can find more of his work at StephenBerlinJohnson.com. I urge you to subscribe to his excellent Substack newsletter, Adjacent Possible. We'll put links in the show notes. Please support The War on Cars on Patreon. Go to thewaroncars.org, click support us, and enlist today. Starting at just $3 per month, you'll get access to exclusive bonus content. We'll send you stickers and a personal note. Special thanks, as always, to our top Patreon sponsors, Charlie G of Human Powered Law in Portland, Oregon, Virginia Baker, Mark Headland; and the Parking Reform Network. Also, a special thanks to our friends at Cleverhood for sponsoring this episode. This episode was recorded by Josh Wilcox at the Brooklyn Podcasting Studio. It was produced and edited by me, Aaron Knapperstack. Our theme music is by Nathaniel Goodyear. On behalf of my co-hosts, Doug Gordon and Sarah Goodyear, this is The War on Cars.
2: And that's why Ethyl Gasoline brings out the full power and performance of your car, so next time you buy gasoline, drive up to the pump with the ethyl emblem and say, fill her up. There's a difference,
0: a powerful difference between gasoline
2: and ethyl.
0: Gasoline!